Revelation chapter number 4. And I'll go ahead and warn you before I begin reading, I'm going to read two chapters of the Bible this morning, all right? So uh, you've been forewarned. I just wanted you to know that. And uh, there's there's some folks that like to stand. That's fine if that's what you like to do. If you don't want to do that, that doesn't offend me one bit. But I did want to forewarn you. We're going to read Revelation chapters 4 and chapter 5 this morning as our text. The Bible says in verse number 1 of Revelation chapter 4, After this I look, this is John speaking, and he says, After this I look, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the thrones were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. And I saw in the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, 
For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb that was that forever and ever. The four beasts said, Amen. <laughs> and I say, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for meeting with us. Thank you for being here. Lord, we don't deserve your presence. We don't deserve your ministration, your working in this place. But, oh, you're a gracious God. You love to visit your people. Lord, we've come here today to praise you, and you inhabit the praise of your people. So, Lord, I pray that you do a work today. There is nothing that human hand can do in this place that is of eternal value. I confess my weakness, my inability. Lord, I I fall short and come up short for every metric and every measure. Lord, I do not in any, in any wise stand here to boast in my own strength. Lord, I just want you to hide me behind your cross. And I want you to make much of Jesus today. And I pray, Lord, that you would show in the hearts of each and every person here the truth of your word. Lord, I don't know any heart here, but you do. You know every single one. There's not a thought or an intent of the heart that's hidden from you. Lord, if there's any that are lost in this place, wouldn't be a surprise in a group this size. I pray that you'd show them their lost state. Lord, show them that they need Christ, that they can't get there through baptism or church membership. Lord, through works of righteousness, which we have done. Lord, that that just through trying to appease their conscience and do the best they can, they'll come up short. Lord, show them that only through the shed blood of Christ, His payment for their sins, can they be saved. And I pray they'd come to you this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd comfort our hearts. I pray you'd encourage us. And I pray you'd draw us closer unto thyself. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a precious God. Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I appreciate your patience this morning in the reading of that lengthy portion of Scripture. I'm interested as we study the Word of God this morning to try for just a few moments to place ourselves in the shoes of the Apostle John. We are reading, of course, the not the revelation of John or of St. John, not the revelations, but as the Bible says, this book of the Bible is, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you know, I would imagine if you're John the Apostle and you've been told in the opening verses of this passage that you're going to witness and receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're going to see Him like heaven sees Him. You're going to see Him the way that God intends for Him to be seen. I would imagine that that would immediately fill your heart with excitement and with joy and with anticipation. But when we begin to read the message that God gives to John, we find that it is not unmitigated, it is not unmingled with only heavenly joy and jubilation, but rather we find that there are some things in the opening chapters of this book of the Bible that trouble the heart. 
John is given messages to deliver to seven individual churches. Now, it's not lost on me, the parallel between these churches and the course of history in the Western world. It's not lost on me that God uh, is probably laying out for us sort of the progression of a people once the gospel is introduced to them. And none of that is missing in my understanding of this passage of Scripture. But I'm also keenly aware that John is writing to seven literal local churches that existed at that time. I think often because of our dispensational perspective, which I think is correct, but I think often because of our perspective, we miss how John would have read this. I mean, we read it and we see sort of the course of the church age, and that's not inappropriate. But John would have read it and he would have heard about churches that were struggling, churches that were drifting, churches that were in distress. In fact, if you read the first three chapters, it don't look like the church is on the march. It looks like the church is struggling. It doesn't look like things are marching upward. It looks like things are sliding downward. It doesn't look like they're drawing closer to Christ. It looks like they're drifting further from Christ. And John, no doubt, was troubled by the news that he had received in the first three chapters. He had heard of the Ephesians uh, at Ephesus leaving their first love. He had heard of the suffering of the church at Smyrna under the persecution of the false Jews and the synagogue of Satan. He had heard of Satan's affliction of the church at Pergamos and of the martyrdom of Antipas. He had also heard of the infiltration of the doctrine of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans at that local assembly. He had heard of the compromise of the church at Thyatira, of Jezebel, and of them plumbing the depths of Satan. He had heard the hypocrisy and cold formalism of the church at Sardis, that they had a name that they lived, but in fact they were dead. He had heard even of Philadelphia, the church that we all sort of laud as the spotless church, the church that was getting it done. Nevertheless, he had heard the impending affliction and trials that that body of believers would experience. And to round it all out, he had heard of the lukewarm apathy and blind carnality of the Laodicean church. He had literally heard them drown out Christ's patient knocking with their revelry and with their rebellious attitude. I don't know about you, but reading the end of the book, we know how it turns out. But if you're John, and this is just being spoon-fed to you by divine revelation, John was no doubt discouraged and disturbed by the news that he had heard in these first three chapters. You know, it'd be sort of like when we look around at the world today. I don't know about you, but there's much to be disturbed about in our world. There's much to be disheartened and discouraged about. I'm rejoicing in the presence of God this morning, and I'm rejoicing in the goodness of God over this past week. But if we're not careful, we'll allow our minds to get fixed upon the brokenness of this world, and it will cause us to lose hope and to lose spirit. You can look around, and it seems like everywhere you turn, men that once stood for something are now giving in to everything. Churches that once did something for Christ are now either doing everything for self or nothing at all. When we look around, our politics is broken, our culture is broken, our educational system is broken. We look at a world that is in flux, it is heaving, it is boiling, it is roiling, it is rocking and reeling. And when we look at this world, there is much to be discouraged about. We, if we're not careful, probably get feeling like John must have been feeling when you get to the end of chapter 3. But I love what the Lord does. The Lord, instead of leaving John in that condition, the Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. 
He's been showing glimpses of the earth all around him. He's seen the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of society, the struggling of the church. And God says, that's how it looks down there. But John, I want to open a door and let you see a different perspective. He sees a door opened in heaven and the first boy, I like this. The first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Let me just pause there because i got about six messages I'm trying to preach right now. And let me just say, hey, I'm looking forward to the day when a door is open and a trumpet sounds. I'm looking forward, the Bible describes that the coming of the Lord Jesus to snatch His bride away, the rapture of the New Testament church, is going to happen just like it happened for John. A door will be opened in heaven, and then the Bible says the trump of God shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Hey, you say, preacher, what are you waiting on? You waiting on the election? No, I, I, oh my... Preacher, are you waiting on society to shape up? No, I listen, I'm not. Hey, preacher, are you waiting on revival to sweep across the nation? I'm praying for it, but I don't know if it'll happen. But I'll tell you what I know is going to happen. I'll tell you what I'm waiting for to happen. I'll tell you what I'm bending my ear for. I'm waiting for the trumpet to sound and the Lord to come back. Hey, listen, man. I mean, John got out like I plan on going out. Amen. If I can, I'm going to beat that undertaker. I'm going to go with the upper taker. Amen. I, listen, don't lay me beneath them cold cloud, clods. I'm going to be leaving in the clouds. Amen. John, he, he hears a, a voice as a trumpet talking with him, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately, John says, I was in the spirit. And I like this. And behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on this. Meanwhile, in heaven. Here's John looking around at a world that's shaken apart. And no doubt he was disturbed and disheartened, discouraged. No doubt he didn't understand. He was scratching his head. I mean, this is the church of the living God that the gates of hell will not prevail against. And yet they're plumbing the depths of Satan. Uh, They're allowing Jezebel to infiltrate their church. The doctrines of Balaam, the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, the cold apathy of the Laodiceans. No doubt he was disturbed and troubled, but... Meanwhile, in heaven, we see there's a different scene. And let me encourage you this morning, church, before I get into my message, hey, I know how messed up everything is. I understand. I look around at this world, and I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, you think you're cynical. I've turned it into an art. Amen? I mean, if there was a, if there was a cynics Olympics, they'd be sending me. Amen? I, I, listen, I, I understand. I, I get it. But can I tell you this? We as believers have much to rejoice in. And if we allow things to rob us of our joy, it will, but your joy shall no man take. Hey, it can't be taken from you without your participation and your complicitness in that process. And I'll tell you this, I know it's all messed up down here, but meanwhile in heaven, things look very, very different. What did John find when God pulled back the veil, opened the door of heaven, and he saw how things look from where God is? I want you to notice three thoughts, and I'll be done this morning. Look with me at verse number 2. It's one of my favorite verses. The Bible says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Can I tell you this morning, church, listen, number one, it may look like we are fraught with weakness down here, but there is power in heaven. 
the throne is associated inextricably with the idea of authority, of jurisdiction, of sovereignty, of power, of capability and ability. And when John looks in heaven, the first thing he sees is not Mamaw. The first thing he sees is not Papaw. The first thing he sees is not his first dog spot. When he looks up into heaven, the very first thing that grabs his attention, the thing that arrests his soul, the thing that elevates him and transcends him above the struggles of his life is he sees a throne. Can I tell you what will help you out a lot in this world if you'd realize, hey, it may be chaos down here, but there's a throne in heaven. I like what it says. Notice three things about this power in heaven. Notice, number one, the person on the throne. A throne is of no use if there ain't somebody sitting on it. And, you know, sometimes we as Christians, and I'm going to be honest, there's going to be stuff we're going to be embarrassed about when we get to heaven. You know, one day, you better be careful how you talk about God. You're going to have to meet Him one day. You're going to have to meet Him one day. And sometimes as believers, we get to poor mouth and about our circumstances. And I'm as guilty of it as you are. I mean, don't get me wrong, but we really get down in the mouth and we really get discouraged, disheartened, and, and we get to talking like God has fell off His throne. I'm sure John probably looked around at a church in turmoil and thought, has God given up? Has God fallen off of His throne? Has everything gone sideways? What has happened in heaven? And God opens the door to heaven and says, John, I want you to look up this way you to see that, hey, listen, the thrones of this earth may be crumbling, but there's a throne. I like the way that John says it. It's set in heaven. Set in heaven. Has the idea of permanence. Has the idea of immutability. Has the idea of invincibility. Can I tell you this? There's nothing that the kings and emperors of this world that fancy themselves gods can do to move the throne of God one millimeter. His throne is set and He is sat upon it. He wants to remind John that though things look completely out of control in this world, God is in fact in complete and total control. I understand that God, there are all kinds of things that happen in life that are against the wishes and desires of God, but nothing is uh, taking place that is outside the parameters of God's sovereignty or control. He said, what do you mean, preacher? Well, God has deemed it appropriate to give man free will and choice. I had somebody send me a message this past week. One of the things they asked me about, I don't know why I answer these emails. I guess I'm just too kind of a person. But somebody sent me an email, so I want to know about church and uh, one of the things they asked about is they said you know uh, what do you think about uh, about lordship salvation i said well he is lord i said i don't believe in lordship salvation however you define that or whatever that means i i believe it's as simple as coming to jesus christ confessing yourself a sinner and asking for him to forgive you and save you i'll tell you this if any person that came to jesus christ understood everything that it entailed to be a christian when they came to christ their flesh might have got the better of them I don't think by any stretch that a person that they come to Jesus Christ and that they understand everything that that means. But I will say this. I don't think sinners come to bargain. I, I do think they come to bow. He is the Lord. And another thing that he asked me about is he said, do you think a person can lose your salvation? I, I said, uh, well, according to the clear teaching of Scripture, no. Uh, because I don't possess my salvation. I am his possession because of salvation. I'm in his hands. And one of the things that they asked me about said, I want your perspective and thoughts on the uh, five points of Calvinism of Tulip. And, and I, I don't know, I was watching Gunsmoke or something. I didn't have time. And so <laughs> all, all I said, all I said in reply was, I believe that mankind has legitimate free will to either accept or to reject Jesus Christ. 
And I still believe that this morning, wouldn't you know? By free will, I've chosen to stand on God's side of the matter. And I have, I have said this. Hey, listen, God gives us legitimate free will choice in all matters. And, and there are things that happen. And because Satan is the God of this world, there are things that happen that grieve the heart of God and break the heart of God and, and, and things that trouble the, the heart of God. But, but God has permitted those things to transpire that He might bring about an expected end in this world. In other words, God is not controlling everything. But God is never out of control of anything. We sometimes, uh, boy, we make ourselves serfs and servants to this world system and this world culture. And you know, the reality is we serve a greater throne. Serve a greater throne. One of the wisest things that I heard somebody say was in our seniors ministry. Brother Bill, the teacher our seniors, this is one of the wise. Are you ready? Boy, this is wise. You ready? I mean, get, if you got a pen, get it ready. He said, I don't care who the president is anymore. <laughs> Because it don't matter what you care about it anyway. But can I tell you this? At the end of the day, I couldn't make that statement if I didn't know who was sitting on the throne. Uh, you're going to have things that take place in your life that you don't understand, things that feel deeply beyond your control. If you have not reconciled yourself to that fact, do yourself a favor and cope with it this morning. But can I tell you this? As a saved, born-again believer, washed the Christ placed in His everlasting hands and resting in His everlasting arms. You never have to worry whether God has tipped off of His throne that He's fell over and is no longer in control. John says, everything's out of control. God says, no, John, it's all still in my control. He sees the person on the throne. And then I like verse 3. The Bible says this, He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. Look what it says. There was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now, you might say, well, preacher, what's the significance of that rainbow around the throne? Well, I would remind you, before the degenerates of this world sought to co-op it for their own wicked devices, that the rainbow has always been associated with God's promise. God gave the rainbow after the universal flood. You say, preacher, you believe in a universal flood? Well, yeah, because I'm a Bible believer. How could I be a Bible believer and not accept what the Bible says about creation, about the universal flood? Couldn't really call myself a Bible believer if I said I'm a Bible believer, but then I don't believe my Bible. Amen. And so, yeah, I believe there was a universal flood, exactly as God said that there was. And uh, and, by, and I also think a whale swallowed Jonah, amen? If God had said Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd believe it. And and God gave... God, I'm just having too much fun this morning, man. I, God gave the rainbow as a sign to the world that he would never again destroy the world by a universal flood. But you know, it's interesting. We see bow in the clouds. But in the Word of God, the Bible describes this bow as not just being an ark, but in fact being a circle that goes entirely around the throne of God. Now you say, well, preacher, what might be the suggested thought concerning that? Well, here's the thing that strikes my mind. The rainbow is a symbol of His promise. The rainbow is a symbol of His mercy. The rainbow is a symbol of His grace. And He ain't just looking through one half of it. Everywhere he turns and everywhere he looks, everything is interpreted through and understood in the light of his promise. So, preacher, what does John see about this power in heaven? Well, he sees the person on the throne, but number two, he sees the promise around the throne. In other words, he sees that everything God sees is seen through the lens of the promise of his word. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we'll get to thinking that God has begun to break His promises to us. But you know, the fact is, God's never broken a promise before. I'll tell you this, heaven and earth shall pass away, but His Word, it'll not pass away. 
There'll be people let you down in life. There'll be people fail you in life. Hey, I'll probably let you down. I'll probably fail you. But can I tell you this? Not one of God's promises has ever failed a single time. You can rest yourself on the reality that God's Word is true. You say, but preacher, some people say it's not true. Yeah, let, let God be true and every man a liar. Hey, listen, there's all kinds of people say all kinds of things. Amen. Uh, that doesn't mean, hey, there's people from the government say they're here to help you. Amen. That don't mean nothing. That don't mean anything. At the end of the day, hey, listen, God's word is always true. It is inexhaustible. It is unchangeable. It is unbreakable. The word of God cannot be broken. John is reminded, though, it looks like everything's falling apart. In fact, all of God's promises have held entirely true. I like it. He, he sees the person on the throne. He sees the promise around the throne. Look at verse 4. The Bible says, Round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. He sees not only the person on the throne and the promise around the throne, but he sees these people before the throne. There are things I can't answer about this. I'll be honest with you. I've got my opinion about my opinion. It's better than most. I know. I mean, it's an opinion. That's all that it is. And, and you know, I certainly can be wrong about it. My opinion and perspective is that these, uh, you know, 24 seats are probably representative of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and 12 apostles in the New Testament. And probably if you were to see who sat upon those seats, it would probably be the 12 apostles of the New Testament, minus Judas, of course, who uh, they replaced with Matthias. I think he was replaced by the Apostle Paul. God just didn't tell him about it. And, uh, and then in the Old Testament, representatives of each of those 12 tribes. But we might get to heaven and find out that's all wrong. I, I don't know. I can't say definitively. Here's what I can say. I can say these people are representative of the people of God. They're holding vials that contain the prayers of the saints. They, they are sitting there robed in white raiment. They are representative of the position that every believer enjoys and occupies that is saved by the grace of God. And you know what I love about it? Here they are, and they're seated before the throne of God. They are seated upon these seats, worshiping Him with eyes fixed upon Him. There's all kinds of things falling apart on earth, but they don't see any of it. Because their eyes are fixed upon Him. People have all kinds of strange ideas. And that's okay. We're all kinds of strange people. There are people that believe that our departed loved ones are uh, on the wind or in the howl of the wolf or the hoot of the hoot owl and uh, some weird neo-pagan stuff that they occupy nature through anthropomorphism. I don't believe that. There's no Bible for it. There's people that believe that our loved ones, when they die, they become angels. I don't believe that that's true. Amen. Uh, they sure enough want angels in life. <laughs> Sprouting wings wouldn't make them any better, amen? Some people's just jerks, amen? Uh, some, some people some people believe that our loved ones, and this is the most common thing, they look at Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 1, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which doth so easily set before us, uh, beset us, and let us run with race that is set, the ra- mm, run with patience race that is set before us. They're in there, it's just my tongue trips sometimes. And they say, well, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. And they kind of think of heaven like this big balcony. And like everybody just sitting there looking over. I guess that would mean when it rains, they're spitting on us. And, and they're, they're looking over at us. And, and listen, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be ugly this. If you believe that, that's between you and the Lord. There's worse things that you could believe, no doubt. But I don't believe that that's true. 
I think the cloud of witnesses that Paul's talking about in the book of Hebrews is he's saying the Old Testament saints had people watching them, and us New Testament saints, we have people watching us. And when I see heaven in the Bible, I don't find them gazing over the balustrade of heaven looking and watching the suffering of the world. That's not what I see. Instead, when I see them in the Word of God, they're not, uh, they're not at the balcony, they're at His feet. And their gaze is not fixed upon us, their gaze is fixed upon Him. I don't know about you, but if heaven is sitting around looking over at everybody's mess, I don't want to go there. I can get on Facebook and do that. I don't think that's what heaven is. I think heaven's all about setting our gaze and eyes upon Him. Here's my point. When He sees the people of God in heaven, they're not troubled. They're not suffering. They're not hurting. They're not bothered. Instead, He sees the people of God. And listen, they're not worrying. They're worshiping at His feet. I'm reminded, hey, listen, suffering stops once we step inside those gates. And I'm glad that God will dry every tear. He's comforted when he sees that there's power in heaven. Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 4. I'll hurry, uh, I guess. Verse 5 says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, this is highly figurative, illustrative language, and I don't believe that John is making things up. I believe that's what he is seeing, and I believe were we to gaze in heaven, we'd see that very thing ourselves. But each of these details bespeaks something deeper than just the physical act or occurrence of what's transpiring. For instance, when the Bible describes in verse 5 the lightnings and thunderings and voices, it reminds us in the Old Testament when the throne of God appears, and by the way, The throne of God appears on several occasions in the Old Testament. It appears in the book of Exodus when it sits down on Mount Sinai. It appears in the book of 1 Kings when it pulls up on the outside of that cave that Elijah is sitting in. It appears in Isaiah chapter number 6 whenever Isaiah, much like John, is given a glimpse in heaven. It appears in Ezekiel chapter number 1 when once again it comes rolling up on Ezekiel's situation. And in all of those situations, it is always accompanied by great lightnings, great thunder, and great voices. And these are described as being the wings beating of the angels. These are described as the fire enfolding itself, the speaking the very consuming presence of God, and the voices are speaking of the very voice of God. I know it spoke in a whisper when he spoke to Elijah, but the Bible describes that voice as sounding like the thunder of many waters. John looks into heaven, and you know what he finds? He finds that the throne of God is not idle, it is active. God is not reclining in His throne, but rather He is ruling from His throne. And you know what He learns when He looks up? He learns there's not just power in heaven, there's a plan in heaven. There's a plan in heaven. I remember becoming an adult, and uh, the moment you're an adult is the moment you wake up and look around and realize nobody else has a plan. (laughs) When you're a kid, you assume everyone has a plan, right? Mom and dad, they got a plan. And uh, when you grow up to be an adult is the moment you look around, you look and you say, that joker ain't got no plan. They don't have a clue what they're doing in their life. And then you stop and look in the mirror and say, you know what, neither do I. (laughs) And sometimes how disconcerting it can be to feel as though there's no plan, no path, no operation, no design. No idea of what we're doing. John, no doubt, whenever he saw the trouble these churches were in, probably felt helpless. 
I mean, John, he's an apostle. He is the last living apostle. And there's a certain measure of apostolic responsibility that he would have had. And he probably thought to himself, what do I do? Do I leave? Do I go and, and visit him? I can't. I'm in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Do, do I take pen in hand and begin to write? But the Spirit of God has not moved me to do so. Can I send someone to fix their situation to help them out? And no doubt he was deeply troubled at feeling helpless. God says, John, I want you to look up in heaven. And I want you to see that though you have no plan, I always have a plan. What does he see? Well, number one, he sees this. He sees God speaking. When he looks up in heaven, what's one of the first things he noticed that that throne is doing? It is speaking with a voice. I tell you this, we may feel sometimes as though God is not working in the hearts and lives of our loved ones and the people around us. We may feel as though the Word of God has somehow fallen, that it's not carrying the power and, and, and impact and, and ability that it once did. And certainly, we would not be mistaken if we, if we did uh, allow ourselves to be conditioned to that thought. For a great many uh, Christians are walking around talking as though the Word of God has no power, talking as though the Gospel of Christ doesn't save people. I mean, listen, it's part of the reason I don't go to a lot of revivals a lot of a good way to, to, to mm, a good way to lose the spirit in your Christianity, the excitement in your Christianity, the vigor in your Christianity is to go to some of these revival meetings. I mean, you'll go to some of them. You're there to get revived, and all the preacher does is get up and talk about how bad everything is, talk about how miserable everything is, talk about how well nobody's getting saved anymore. Hey, we had five saved this past week. You say, preacher, you don't know if they're saved. I don't know if you're saved. And you criticize kids coming to Christ, I, I'm, I, it, 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 it's a mark against you in my mind. I see people getting saved. I see God working. I see God moving. I don't think God's fell off His throne. I think God's still speaking to people. I understand He's not speaking in the sense of giving new revelation concerning uh, who He is or His Word. I'm not implying any of these weird neo-pagan, uh, you know, extra-scriptural sources of, of, of revelation or ideas. I'm not endorsing those. But what I am saying is this. God's still using His current, extant, preserved Word to speak to the hearts of those that are willing to listen to Him. No doubt John probably sat there and thought, what's God got to say about it? And God said, come up and find out, John. He, he, he looks and he finds John, uh, he finds God speaking. Look at verse number five at the end. The Bible says this, there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, time would fail me to deal with this at length the way that I wish I could, but it's not implying here that there are seven Holy Spirits. What it's doing is it's describing uh, the sevenfold aspect or the sevenfold characteristics of the ministering of the Spirit of God in God's working. You can read about them uh, when the Bible describes the anointed of God that would come in the book of Isaiah and describes Him as being anointed and having uh, the seven spirits of God. And then it goes on to list them, to characterize them. And it talks about peace and joy. Uh, it talks about His consecration. In other words, it's talking about the attributes or characteristics of the Spirit of God. But here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how these same lamps are described in chapter number 5, verse 6. Listen to what it says. But I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth all the earth. In other words, describing the characteristics of the Holy Ghost of God and His uh, vocation and office in exposing the darkness of this world, it describes the Spirit of God as He ministers as being the eyes of God. 
know what it reminds me of? What does John find? Well, he finds, he finds God speaking, but number two, he finds God seeing. He finds that God is not blind. God is not implacable. God is not unfeeling. God is not oblivious. No doubt he thought to himself, Lord, why don't you see the trouble your people are in? Don't you see their suffering? Don't you see their struggles? Don't you see their trials? And God says, John, I want you to come up. You see that with your two eyes. What do you think I see with my seven eyes? They go to and fro, run to and fro throughout all the earth. And you say, preacher, uh, I'm going through things. Sometimes I wonder if God knows about it. Yeah, God knows about it. God sees. God sees what you're going through. One of the most precious passages in the Word of God, whenever Hagar, cast out of the presence of Abraham, goes and, and, and sits down beside a place that she would later on name Beer Leharoi. And, and she sits there and she thinks all the world has forgotten about her. She thinks she's abandoned. She thinks no one cares about her. Her and her son have been cast in the wilderness to die there and nobody cares who they are. They're worthless. They're meaningless. They're throwaway people. And then all of a sudden, the voice of God speaks from heaven to her. And she says, God has seen me. Hey, listen, one of the most precious things in life is just to be reminded, He sees us. He sees us. And I don't just mean He sees us in the sense of He is aware of our physical location, our geographical place. But I mean, he, he don't just see, he, he don't just have sight, he has insight. He doesn't just see, he in sees. <laughs> he sees us the way he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. He sees us and he sees our heart and he sees our struggles and he sees our trials and he knows our worries and he lifts our burdens. I mean, John said, doesn't God see all this? And God says, yes, John, I see everything. I love it, man. He finds God speaking. He finds God seeing. Look in chapter number five. Look at these first few verses here. The Bible says this, John said, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Let's pause there. John does not probably understand everything implied in this, but he does know this. God's given a word and he wants to hear it. The problem is there's no one open that scroll. We understand what these seals are because they'll be opened in the following chapters and with them accompanies the judgment of God, the wrath of God being poured out on this Christ-rejecting world. But all John knows is this. Uh, You you say, uh, John, there's a plan. There's a plan. But John looks and he says, here's a problem with the plan. God may have a plan, but how is the plan going to be carried out? There's a scroll, there's seals, but who's going to open it? There's no one to open it. Nobody's worthy. Nobody's paid the price. Nobody has the glory. Nobody has the majesty. Nobody has the power. There's no one. He says, we looked everywhere. We looked in the halls of Old Testament prophets, but none of them measured up. We looked in the Levitical tribe, and, and none of them measured up. We looked at the New Testament apostles, and none of them measured up. John says, I'm the beloved apostle, but even I can't open it. There's no one that can open this seal. Then all of a sudden, somebody puts a hand on his shoulder and says, John, settle down, John. Settle down, son. Weep not. You can't open it, John. I can't open it, John. But there's one that can open it. Hey, listen. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he hath prevailed. He's alive. I like the way he's described as a lamb slain, but he's standing. 
<laughs> there, there's still the blood around his, his neck. There's still the blood stains upon his wool. There's still the scars upon him. But he's standing. He's died. But he's defeated death. He's gone through that dark veil. But he's come out the other side. He's taken death upon him. But then he's cast him off as a foe defeated. Hey, listen. The lion grabbed the lamb in his mouth. And the lamb turned around and rent the lion. All of a sudden... He said, there's one that can. He hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. In other words, here's what he finds. John says, God, you got a good plan, but it won't work. John didn't know as much as God knew. And God says, you don't understand this, John. There's things you think are impossible that I've already seen too. Here's what he finds. He finds, I'm going to say it this way. He finds God scheming. <laughs> he finds God had a plan all along. Oh, boy, man, we're going to be shocked one day when we get to heaven and realize God had a plan all along. Man, we thought, I mean, I don't know, man, all the political Fox News told me everything's falling apart. I thought it was all falling apart. And then I found out that God had a plan the whole time. Listen, I thought this world had won. I thought wicked men had prevailed. And then come to find out God had won all along. One of my favorite passages, I was just reading it, it's weighing heavy on my heart before I started preaching, is in Isaiah 44, when it talks about Israel and their redemption. It says, sing, O Israel, for the Lord hath done it. <laughs> One day you say, preacher, what are we going to sing about all that time in heaven? We're going to sing, the Lord hath done it. He has prevailed. He has overcome. We thought it had all fallen apart, but in fact it was all falling into place. <laughs> When he looks in heaven, he finds there's power in heaven. He finds there's a plan in heaven. But finally, and I'm done, I like what it says in verse number 6. Look with me, chapter 4, verse 6. The Bible says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night. And this is what they say. They say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. You know what he finds out when he goes to heaven? He finds out there's power in heaven. He finds out there's a plan in heaven. But then he finds out there's praise in heaven. Men may be cursing God on the earth, but they are praising Him in heaven. He finds out that nothing of what the world said about the Lord has changed God's opinion of Himself or heaven's opinion of Him. And when he gets there, he finds that men are not standing around fretting and debating and discussing how to solve these things because God already has a plan to solve them. So all they're doing is sitting around, eyes fixed upon him, rejoicing in him and praising who he is. I like their message. By the way, it's almost identical to the message of the angels in Isaiah chapter number 6. You say, preacher, why is that? Because they's the angels in Isaiah chapter number 6. Same throne, same heaven, same God, same creatures. You say, but preacher, they look a little different. Well, yeah, they look a little different because Isaiah wasn't in heaven. He was just looking up at heaven. And he saw it on a two-dimensional plane. So he just sees them flying left to right, and he sees them with the face of a man. He couldn't see them from the other side. John, he's in the throne room of God. He sees them in a three-dimensional perspective. So he sees all the different sides of them. But the message is almost the same. And the key note of it is holy, holy. Holy, holy. 
What's their praise about in heaven? Well, number one, there's praise of His holiness. They're not cussing Him in heaven. They're praising Him. They're not criticizing Him in heaven. They're praising Him. They're not questioning Him in heaven. They're praising Him. And far from God's holiness being a mark against Him, as He is in modern uh, cultural Christianity, in heaven, they're awful pleased with the holiness of God. They're not bothered by the holiness of God. They're not sitting around chewing on their nails trying to figure out why God won't be more like them. They're thanking God that God isn't like them. That in fact He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. That He is a perfect God. They're praising Him. What are they praising Him? Well, they're praising Him over His holiness. But then look at the next verse, verse 9. The Bible says this, And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before Him that sat on the throne and worship Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Now, I want you to notice the difference in their message. You understand that the perfect angelic creatures, they speak of His holiness. But notice what these fallen human beings, redeemed by the grace of God and now seated, robed in righteousness at His feet, they say this, Thou art worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. Here's what they're praising him over. They're praising him over his worthiness. Why is he worthy? Well, he's worthy because of his glory. I like the way they say it there. What do they say? Thou art worthy to what? To receive glory and honor and power. Why is that? For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure, and notice the inversion here. Now, if I say, now I would say they were and are created. But that's not how the, the, uh, the elders in heaven say it. They say they are and were created. Why is that? Because they've got a backwards perspective. They're looking retrospectively. They're in a place where there is no time. And everything is not was, everything is is in the presence of God. Uh, he is the eternal God, and they are now in a timeless place. And so they have a backwards perspective. They're looking back at how He created everything. And He says, you know, it's not just that they are for His pleasure, it's that they always were for His pleasure. Uh, they find out that this Lamb that is slain, He didn't just show up in heaven and get slain that day. He was slain from the foundation of the world. God didn't call an audible at Calvary. Hey, Calvary was always the plan of God. God didn't just put together the church from the broken pieces of the nation of Israel. It was always the plan of God. We were foreordained to the adoption of sons unto Jesus Christ by Himself. Hey, listen, it was always the plan of God. And they're standing around. You know what they're saying? They're saying what we're saying today and what we're going to be saying one day. They're saying, you know, huh? it's like He always knew what He was doing. You know why He's worthy of glory? Because He is God and He was always in control and He hath done all things well. They're praising Him for His glory. Then notice a final thing, and I'm done with my introduction. Verse 8, the Bible says, And when he had taken the book, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, when the Lamb had taken the book, one day he's going to take the book, friend. When he had taken the book, four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they, they, they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? For thou wast slain. 
You know why he's worthy to take that book of the wrath of God and pour it out? Because he's the one this world rejected. He's the one they nailed to a cross. Because he was slain, but not just he was slain, he has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then everybody else gets in on it. Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. What is the theme of their song? What is the song they are singing? It is of grace and of redemption. What are they praising Him for? Well, they're praising Him because of His glory. But finally, they're praising Him because of His grace. (laughs) I have a song to sing that angels cannot sing. They do not know it. They've peered over into God's revelation trying to understand just what gives me the song that I sing. And they can sing holy, holy, holy. And they can sing glory, glory, glory. But they cannot sing grace abundant. For that's the song of the redeemed that have tasted the depths of sin, but have also tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That have known what it is to be the slave of Satan, to be the servant of death, but have had their chains broken, have had the manacles thrown off, the shackles cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness and have been set in a right position with a thrice holy God. They sing grace, grace, grace. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. The world thinks little of the blood of Christ. Religion thinks little of the blood of Christ. Culture thinks little of the blood of Christ. But oh, let me tell you, there's a high value placed on it in heaven. I'll tell you this, there's no greater, no more precious, no more valuable commodity than the slain blood of the Lamb that is victorious today. Say, preacher, everything's falling apart down here. I know, I know, I got the news too. But can I tell you this, up in heaven things look a lot different. Say, well, preacher, that don't encourage me because I'm down here. My sojourn is down here. Yes, but your citizenship is in heaven. Your sovereign is in heaven. Your salvation is in heaven. And I've got good news for you. You say, preacher, I get awful discouraged. I know we all do from time to time. What can I do, preacher? Look up and look at God's throne and see that He's still in power. He's still perfect and He's still in control. Let's bow together this morning. Musician's going to come and play and I want to give you the opportunity to come and to meet the Lord in the altar if He's spoken to your heart. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus, we ask it in His name.